Hugh MacDiarmid has always been a controversial figure as poet, Scottish nationalist and Marxist. Although he is a skilled antagonist, he is not formidable to meet. He is a small man who seems to be in the middle 50s instead of the middle 70s, convivial and a great talker with a warming Scots accent. His real name is Christopher Murray Grieve, and as his mother was a Murray, he at times wears the Murray Tartan. That was the doyen of Irish poets, Austin Clark, talking about his Scottish counterpart, Hugh MacDiarmid, who was born in Drumfreeshire in 1892, served with the RAMC in the First World War, and was a co-founder of the Scottish National Party, from which he was, in due course, expelled for being a communist. About the same time, he was expelled from the Communist Party for being a nationalist. As a poet, he was the father of the Scottish literary revival, which matched our own. This was the revival of a great tradition. Scotland, as we know, had a great poetic literature from the time of Dunbar and Gowan Douglas to the Act of Union, where James VI of Scotland became James I of England. And, of course, uh, the Doric, or Lannans, as they call it, is not the English language, but a sister of it. Then poetry declined until the coming of Burns. For a century, Burns became a cult, and his birthday is celebrated with copious potations, cope of the best Scotch. Hugh MacDiarmid, as leader of the new Scottish literary revival, attacked this cult. He wrote in Scots, or Lannans, as I said, but he had a brilliant idea of using local words for, from various parts of Scotland in his poems. This aroused much opposition, and his poems were attacked as being in synthetic Scots. Among those who hailed his first lyrics was A.E., then editor of the Irish Statesman. MacDiarmid had many Irish friends and collaborators in those days, but he hadn't visited Ireland for many years until last year. He came over again a couple of weeks ago to make for Clatter Records a long-playing disc of his poems. And he renewed an old friendship with Austin Clark, whom he first met in London many years ago. When I first went to live in London, I met Hugh MacDiarmid with some friends in a Fleet Street tavern. He had just been appointed assistant editor of a periodical named The Gramophone and he asked me to come around some afternoon to the office for a chat. I'm afraid we'd no chat, for the editor, Compton Mackenzie, the famous novelist, was there sitting in an elaborate chair which looked like a throne. Well, he got up from the throne, paced up and down, talked exuberantly, waving his hands in foreign gestures. Two such powerful personalities could hardly hold together for, for long, and soon afterwards, MacDiarmid resigned and went off to the Shetlands. So it was not until many years afterwards that I met him again at an international meeting of the Penn Club in Edinburgh. At the inaugural meeting, I came into the hall, which was already almost full, but sitting alone in a right-hand corner, as if avoided by everyone, was the leader of the Scottish Revival, and the author of Seven Hymns to Lenin. He waved to me enthusiastically, and I sat down beside him. 
The opening lecture was given by a well-known American dramatist. I think it was Sherwood Anderson. It was a dull lecture which gradually turned into a long diatribe against communism. I was dismayed. With a pen club was formed to encourage friendship between writers of all countries and of all political and religious opinions. Suddenly, Schumach German jumped up, denounced the speaker who had broken the rules of PEN and marched out. Of course, I should have followed him, but I was in an awkward position. I'd been invited by Scottish Pen as a guest, and a guest has to behave himself, whatever happens. After the lecture, uh, St. John Irvine got up and also attacked the absent nationalist. The next day, MacDermott introduced me to other Scottish poets who were in Edinburgh, Sidney Goodsear-Smith, Norman McCabe, Douglas Young, Morris Lindsay, and others, including Sawley McLean, who writes in Highland Gaelic, or as they call it, Gaelic. All these poets during that week were, so to speak, on the fringe, for the Edinburgh Festival was, for those seven days um, uh, going on, as commercial as our own festival. Even the two big city theatres there are owned by a London uh, business firm. However, I had a wonderful time talking to these poets and taverns and seeing the historic places of Edinburgh, once the Athens of the North. I met also that fine dramatist James Bridie. He was a brave man, for he was suffering at the time from an incurable disease, but he still took an active part in the direction of the Citizens' Theatre, an uncommercial theatre which could be an example to us here. One of MacDiarmid's best-known poems consists of four symbolic lines with the title The Little White Rose of Scotland. It contains much of the history of his country. The rose of all the world is not for me. I want for my part only the little white rose of Scotland that smells sharp and sweet and breaks the heart. MacDiarmid is, as we shall see, a man whose heart takes in the whole world, and only the whole world is big enough to fill it. Nor is Scotland too small for it. Scotland small. Scotland small. Our multiform, our infinite Scotland small. Only as a patch of hillside may be a cliche corner to a fool who cries nothing but heather. Where in September another, sitting there and resting and gazing round, sees not only heather but blaberries with bright green leaves and leaves already turned scarlet, hiding ripe blueberries. And amongst the sage green leaves of the bog myrtle, the golden flowers of the tormentil shining. And on the small bare places where the little black faced sheep found grazing, milkworts blue as summer skies. And down in neglected peat hags, not worked in living memory, swagger moss in pastel shades of yellow, green, and pink. Sundew and butterwort and nodding harebells vying in their colour with the blue butterflies that poise themselves delicately upon them. And stunted rowans with harsh dry leaves of glorious colour. Nothing but heather. 
how marvelously descriptive and incomplete. But then, as MacDiarmid said to me himself, Scotland is not one place to him, but many. It's many places. Scotland has never been effectively unified. And I think one of the great advantages of Scotland is that diversity, that variety. It makes for the richness of life in Scotland. And the more it becomes recognized, accentuated, the better, I think, things will be in Scotland. We don't want to be all the same, all much alike. The more sharply differentiated we are, the better. In that respect, Scotland is very like what France used to be when the provinces of France were so sharply differentiated that made for the glory of France. I hope the same thing is going to happen in Scotland again. Uh, pinpoint some of these differences for me and some of these varieties. Well, you have the northeast corner, of course, which is Scandinavian, largely Scandinavian, and quite unlike, the people are quite unlike the people anywhere else in Scotland. The Aberdonians, of course, are known all over the world for a sort of granitic hardness. Not far away from them, you have the Gaelic-speaking area, the Goyltacht. The people are, of course, Celtic, and they retain, despite their diminishing numbers, they retain the old Celtic qualities of hospitality, generosity of spirit, interest in the arts, and so on. Then we come down to the centre of Scotland, round about Perth and so on. There's been a reawakening of life, of local life, or regional life, in that area. It hasn't got back yet to its real Celtic roots, but it's moving in that direction. We hear a lot about the decline of Gaelic. Well, native Gaelic speakers, of course, are decreasing in number, but there, ne there have never been more people learning Gaelic. There's never been a greater interest in acquiring Gaelic. Unfortunately, within the last few years, the opposition of the education authorities to teaching Gaelic in the schools has been relaxed. Then Edinburgh, of course, is hopeless. Edinburgh is a magnificent provision for an unfulfilled function. It has all the wrong kind of people. It has a preponderance of lawyers, bankers, university professors, and a lack of popular warmth. We used to say about Edinburgh that it was East Windy and West Endy. It is still so. Although I was educated myself in Edinburgh and so on, I've written very violently against Edinburgh, and I think I'll have to continue to do that until there's a re-establishment of an independent Scottish Parliament, which may not be in Edinburgh. And what about Glasgow? Glasgow is a very different proposition. Glasgow has an enormous popular warmth. It's a proletarian city, but it is also the Celtic capital of the world. You've got large elements of the population who are Scottish Celts. You've got a big Welsh element. You've got a big Irish element. And consequently, the quality of life in Glasgow has a very strong 
Celtic basis. That leads to a variety of things. It may lead to trouble, to violence occasionally. Why not? Violence is an inseparable part of life everywhere, and if it takes particular forms in particular places, that's no reason for disparaging the thing itself. But apart from violence, because of that Celtic element in Glasgow, in contradistinction to Edinburgh, Glasgow is the real cultural centre of Scotland. We've got more young writers there, we've got a greater degree of experimentation in the arts, painting, of course, the Glasgow School was famous, and there's been a continuous succession of painters centred in Glasgow still who have carried on the independent traditions of Scottish painting. Now, with all this variety in Scotland, you still think that the word Scottish and the word Scotland have a meaning? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think it has. Because all these elements, diverse as they are, have something in common. I think what they have in common, ultimately, is a recognition of the value of not losing that diversity, of appreciating the separate qualities of the different elements and of trying to combine them effectively but at any rate, tolerating them in a generous way, and that makes for a rich and varied life. I think this, this idea of Scotland lies behind these different manifestations. And just as people know who travel in Scotland, that within very short distance, you have astonishing changes of scenery. So, in Scottish life, it's necessary to preserve a psychological counterpart to that topographical change of scenery and so on that is marked a feature of Scotland. In other words, there's a unity in diversity. Do you think institutions are important? The fact that Scotland hasn't had a parliament, uh, has it wounded Scotland? Or has Scotland, on the other hand, gained anything from having her own law system? I think it has gained a great deal from some of, its, some of its institutions, and particularly its legal system. Contrary to general opinion, the Scottish system has all kinds of international affiliations. It goes back to Roman law. It's related to the other legal systems of Western European countries, whereas English law is a nigger in the woodpile. It has no affiliations with any of the continental legal systems. And in that respect, any attempt to assimilate Scottish institutions to English is bound to be a mistake because our affiliations lie with Europe. And in contrast to England and to the English institutions, they have an insularity which I don't think they'll ever transcend if we can renew our old relations, our old independent relationships with Europe, particularly with France, Spain, I think we'll restore Scotland to what it might have been if the Union hadn't intervened. The old alliance was with France. Somebody suggested the new alliance might be with Ireland. 
There's no question at all that there's a real need and a growing appreciation of the need for a closer understanding, greater measure of cooperation between all the Celtic countries of the British Isles, and that is coming. At the present time, the leaders of the cultural movement in Scotland and so on fully appreciate that we Scots came originally from Ireland and that we have a great deal in common and that the interests of our countries ought to go hand in hand. And I think that will happen. I personally, of course, have for a very long time been particularly interested in Ireland. I knew all the leaders, leading Irish writers of the Irish literary movement, A.E., W.B. Yeats, Oliver St. John Gogarty, Stephen McKenna, the translator of Plotinus, and a host of others. Most of the older ones are dead now, of course, but I've been very happy to have established relationships, friendly relationships, with a lot of the younger writers in Ireland. Richard Ryan, John Montague, Tom Kinsler, and others. I can't remember all the names just at once, but I think we have a great deal in common, and as long as we don't try to imitate each other, but do our own work on the basis of the things that distinguish our own particular national tradition, I think we may be of great assistance to each other. But what of the argument that all this inter-Celtic thing is so much romanticism, so much escapism, a hankering for dead glories and getting away from the realities of life. I think those who argue in that way are themselves escaping from the realities of the situation. If we have wrong associations, surely the right thing is to try to escape from them. It doesn't mean that we're escaping from life. It may mean that we're escaping into a richer and fuller life. And I think that's precisely what this inter-Celtic relationship can mean and is beginning to mean. Do you think, then, that, say, the choice by a writer of what is not a world language is not an escape? No. They used to argue that way in Scotland in the 18th century. All the Edinburgh literati warned Burns that if he persisted in writing in Scots, he would confine his readership to a fraction of the Scottish reading public. Whereas, if he wrote in English, he would have the English-speaking world at his feet. Burns paid no, no heed to that advice. And the consequence was that he became a world literary figure of unparalleled acclaim. There's never been in any literature at any time a poet who achieved such worldwide success. And he did it on the basis of Scots, of the Scots language. The great anthem of world friendship all over the world today is Burns. Lang Syne, which can't be translated into English at all. Against that, we're still told 
that English is a great world language. Now, the facts lie rather in the opposite direction. Increase of the number of independent states in the world and the cultural developments in these countries, in all of which they're re-emphasizing their native tongues, adapting them to modern needs and so on, shows that the world is not moving, as we used to be told, towards an undifferentiated world state. On the contrary, it's becoming more and more diversified, and I think that's a very healthy development, and one that will finally get rid of this nonsense that culture or economic good health or governmental security lies with the big powers. On the contrary, the, the world as a whole is going against the old assumptions of imperialism, cultural imper imperialism, linguistic imperialism, any form, form of imperialism. And I think that's a good thing, and I think we in the Celtic countries are aligned with that, and that it is one of the greatest hopes for the future of mankind. So what you said a while ago about Scotland and its diversity and the unity in diversity, you'd almost make that a parable for the whole world, would you? I would, and I think, I, I, I think that contrary to the assumptions of the people who used to say, oh, we mustn't... Um, become too particular about Scottish differences and so on, contrary to their assumptions, that is precisely what humanity is doing all over the world. In other words, instead of putting back the hands of the clock, we are now putting the clock right, setting it to the right time. But you don't think at all that the, even though we may have the clock put at the right time, do you not think that there are other forces, forces of economics, forces of power, that money talks and tanks talk, and that maybe this ideal vision of a unity and diversity of small peoples is not possible anymore. No, I don't think that. I think that the tremendous tragedies that have occurred in human history during my lifetime have so alarmed the masses of humanity that the peace movement will ultimately prevail. There are signs everywhere today, not only in the resumption of independence by many small countries, but even in the capitalist world itself, Big firms with international ramifications are finding it more and more necessary to abate their centralizing tendency and devolve more responsibility, more initiative upon individual managers of their branches in different countries. I know that Woolworths, for example, the Woolworth Empire, has to concede a very considerable measure of initiative to its local managers and that these local managers are encouraged 
to use their initiative in ways in accordance with local traditions and that rulers find that ultimately profitable. I think that's a sign in the right direction. <laughs> Although we're not really concerned about the future of the capitalist world, are we? No, well, but if the, if the, if the capitalist world finds it necessary to abate its centralizing tendency, then ultimately all we're doing is encouraging it to destroy itself. <laughs> I think I see a fallacy there lurking somewhere. <laughs> and how about the socialist world? Is the tendency which we had hoped and delighted to see happening towards decentralization there, has that not been somewhat arrested by recent events? I'm afraid it has. I'm not going to commit myself too definitely as to where the blame lies in that matter. The evil genius of Stalin, despite all his remarkable qualities, has to a very large extent disoriented the labor and socialist movement in the world. But I think we're beginning to recover from that. After all, the stand that Yugoslavia made is one that in a smaller degree, despite all the pressures, has been made by several other countries now. Hungary, for example, Czechoslovakia, despite the recent troubles, and I think that'll continue. I know, and I've traveled in all the communist countries, except Albania. I've been in China and all the others. I know that in the Soviet Union, the minority republics have acquired a very considerable measure of autonomy. I'm thinking particularly of the Republic of Georgia. Prior to the October 17 revolution, in order to get jobs, university students in what we used to call Tiflis and they're now called Tbilisi were obliged to concentrate on great Russian language. Georgian was out. Since the establishment of the Georgian Republic, the native language has come fully into its own again. Prior to that, Georgian graduates couldn't get jobs in Georgia itself. There were too many of them. They had to go to Egypt and France and so on. Now, there's no student who graduates in the Tbilisi University who can't get a, a job, a suitable job, in his own country. And in that university, there's a very long corridor lined with glass cases containing books, hundreds upon hundreds of books, all of which are in the Georgian language and published within recent years. I think that is a thing that's going to develop everywhere. And it'll, it'll ultimately be a solvent of the bigger issues of overriding economic pressures, armaments, and so on. I believe if the roots are made healthy in that way, that 
ultimately, the whole form that rises from these roots will reacquire a greater measure of health than it seems to have had in the past. People might think there was a paradox here, the idea that the development of the separate language, mm -hmm. will, uh, the idea of that development helping rather than hindering communication internationally? I know, I think that is a fallacy. We, we've been told for a long time in Scotland, for example, it was no, there was no point in persisting in maintaining the Scots language, no point in children being taught Gaelic, there's no future in it. The only thing that mattered was economic advantage, and they could only get that through English. That is, that is a fallacy, not the contrary position. Some of the ablest men that Scotland has produced in modern times have shown that. Yes, one might say, and fine for the intellectual, but how about the ordinary man in the ordinary house in Glasgow, or the ordinary pub in Glasgow, are going to the pictures in Glasgow. And I know these are the people that you care about, as you've shown in your verse over and over again. How about them and all this? Isn't it a bit highfalutin for them? Well, it may seem to be so, but then we were talking about literature and the arts and everything that appertains to the brain and the spirit is a bit highfalutin from the standard of these people. But they are conscious of their own disabilities. And these disabilities have been imposed upon them by the system against which I'm contending and can only ultimately be rectified by destroying that system and encouraging the opposite. And when you say this system, you would characterize it in what word? Cosmopolitanism or something? cosmopolitanism, which is the opposite of internationalism. Internationalism means the encouragement of the national distinctions of the various nations that constitute the internationalism. You can't have an internationalism without having nationalisms to be inter-with. Cosmopolitan washes over all that, destroys the distinctions and so on, and violates the ancient biblical injunction of not venturing to destroy the landmarks. <laughs> you don't see then any conflict between nationalism and internationalism, nor between nationalism and socialism? No, none whatever. And even on the linguistic level, it's a very interesting thing that the greatest theoretician of Marxism in Europe Antonio Gramsci, the Italian, like a, a, an even greater predecessor of his, who was not a Marxist, Dante, both found it necessary to write, not in Italian, but in their local dialects. <laughs> Tuscan. <laughs> you yourself have preached the gospel of socialism mm. in your verse. Yeah. Do you think that this is a proper function for poetry? to preach a gospel? There have been periods, particularly in English literature, when a false aestheticism deprecated the idea of political 
were other propagandist expressions in verse. But that runs counter to the whole history of literature. Great literature has always been propagandist, not necessarily politically, but broadly speaking, propagandist. It's a very difficult thing indeed to write poetry that is at one and the same time great poetry and good political poetry. But it's infinitely more worthwhile than writing aesthetically acceptable verses that deal with trivial subjects and don't join issue with the central requirements of mankind. You think then poetry is for the people? Undoubtedly it's for the people. It arises from the people. And unless it maintains contact with them, it begins to become precious, isolated, cut away. I believe that the arts today are coming into their own as never before in human history with a greater measure of affluence, more leisure and so on. Where are the, what are the people going to do with their spare time? It's a real problem. We, even, even in Scotland we have associations for telling people how to employ themselves after they retire. That's lamentable. If they had any resources, any spiritual or mental resources in themselves, that question wouldn't arise. Today, a poet, even in Scotland, even in a little-known language, by means of radio and television, can appeal to infinitely more people than all the great poets of the past had at their command. That's going to continue. We are not speaking any longer merely to our own people. We can speak at once, no matter what language we use, we can speak at once to the whole world public. Yet you are on record as saying, I think, something like this, that poetry need not and perhaps should not be immediately uh, intelligible okay. to the common reader. Yes, quite. No, it must be approached with a regard for the difficulty of all mental processes. There's nothing so rare as thought. It's an unnatural process, process of thinking. Most people think they think when they're merely rationalizing. And a greater measure of thinking is one of the prime requirements of the human, of human beings at the present time. Real thinking. Because the processes of science, the enormous developments of science in the last decade or two, do require a fresh emphasis on individual thought. And when you emphasize individual thought, you can't divorce that from its local circumstances. After all, art of all kinds, literature and the other arts, don't come from the conscious. They come from the unconscious. And it's because of that Little-known languages, languages that may have become obsolescent and so on, are so vitally important because they lie at the roots of our being, they're in our subconscious, and it's only by invoking our subconscious that we can produce great art. I know myself in my own work. I had no intention of writing in Scots. High poetry hadn't been written in Scots three centuries 
when I began. It was a revelation to me, almost like the psychological phenomenon of conversion, religious conversion. I knew I required words that I didn't know. Recourse to the dictionary, yes. But if you are writing a poem and you want a word or two that you don't know, but that you know must be there, how are you going to find it in a big dictionary? The problem doesn't really arise. If you sufficiently concentrate, the word comes out of the dictionary to you at once and establishes itself. <laughs> he laughs, this political man, when he talks about the trade secrets of poetry. Still, it's the poets, Scottish and Irish, old and young, who know him. John Montague remembers when he first discovered MacDiarmid, as they say. Well, I discovered his work uh, about 20 years ago in, I think, Kevin Street Library. And there were two books there. One was, was his autobiography, uh, Lucky Poet, which is most immodest uh, sort of book. I, who had been used to reading autobiographies of of plants, of, uh, of the shy kind of a poet was, I was surprised by this, and there was also a book of lyrics. And I, I discovered in these lyrics kind of energy and intellectual power, and uh, also a lot of the language that I had been used to in, in the north of Ireland. Uh, what he described as lalans is partly a language that I had been used to and which hasn't been much used in, in poetry in Ireland even though it is part of our, our heritage here now. Has he remained part of your life, part of your life in poetry? Yes, because uh, a long poem like The Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle uh, seems to me an example of the kind of thing that an Irish poet might try to do. If you remember it, it's about uh, a long drunken evening in, in which he has a series of almost psychedelic experiences uh, only through the consumption of whiskey. Well, uh, and it's on a national uh, subject matter. I have been working on a long poem for quite some time now, and I would hope that I would have profited from his example, which was, uh, which was, uh, which was this kind of, of revolving on an axis around a central theme, continually uh, altering the approach and the style, introducing all kinds of material that people do not think usually as being part of poetry. Has the concern with politics, some would say the obsession with politics, has it made his work uh, bigger or smaller for you? Well, one has to accept the man as he has expressed himself, and he has hardly left any aspect out. It is true that he would appear to be almost cranky on the double subject of nationalism and communism. Uh, I don't think that the first obsession should surprise us here. Uh, I think uh, the communism is so clearly expressed and so radical and is so much an example of the dialectic in poetry that it is, um, 
it shows up, for example, English political poetry of the, 19, of, of the 1930s. If you're going to have, have communism in poetry, it should be as total as that, because then you can either reject it or accept it. And uh, the communism can also be seen as part of his compassionate view, not of, of the poor, because he regards, for example, the poor of Glasgow in his poems on, on that city as being almost like worms pollulating. But his compassion for man and his hopes that they would achieve some kind of larger order of life where their instincts might be better satisfied. Terence McCahey, who's an Antrim man, but has worked in Scotland and knows MacDiarmid well, and who lectures in Irish and Scots Gaelic now in TCD, echoes this point and develops it. There's a thing about Hugh MacDiarmid that always strikes me very forcibly, either in meeting him or in reading his poetry or anything that he writes, and that is his enormous compassion, his enormous sensitivity to the suffering of ordinary people and the suffering of humanity in the mass. Uh, he isn't in any way um, inclined to sentimentalize this. It's very unattractiveness makes him feel it the more. And uh, you see this in his early poetry, but perhaps not so much there as in the hymn to Lenin, the, uh, the later poetry, the uh, James jo in memoriam James Joyce and in other places. This enormous sensitivity to the human to human suffering and finding the earth itself the more attractive for the fact that it is the place where human suffering takes place the uh, earth thou bonny brook at bairn and in thy tears they'll drown the hail clan jamfrey Your, uh, earth outshines uh, mars and uh, venus and the rest because it's the place where human beings suffer and yet of course this uh, um, passionate indignation about suffering uh, Passionate, he wouldn't like to be, to be called Calvinist, but I, I will, as a Presbyterian minister, call it Calvinist indignation uh, about um, suffering and injustice. And while that in itself would be an impressive and is impressive in any man, I think that Hugh McDermott has made it effective um, and positive by his Marxist analysis of society. Uh, it's that analysis of society, whether one shares it entirely or not, that has enabled him to do things positively in Scotland. And one of the things that he has done um, is undoubtedly to restore in Scotland a sense of there being one Scottish nation which has enormous variety um, from the Norse influence, the, the, the Gaelic influence coming from Ireland, and the uh, lowland Scots uh, influence coming from the Anglo-Saxon. Yes, uh, he has already said to us how much he delights in this diversity. Yeah. Now, he is a person who delights in it, um, but uh, he has actually been able to show um, uh, that the highland and the lowland thing, um, far from being two separate uh, cultures existing more or less in more or less in hostility, are uh, at some, in some ways part of the same thing. Um, he has, um, his Marxist analysis has enabled him, in other words, to see that the Scottish miner in uh, Fife in the lowlands, shale miner or coal miner, 
victimized, out of employment, and so on, is victim of exactly the same system as the fisherman, the farm laborer, the smallholder in the highlands. And uh, he brought this so forcibly, uh, as it seems to me, to the... To the uh, to attention that people like uh, Sam McLean and Saint Marc uh, from the Isle of Rarsa near of uh, Sky and uh, George Campbell Hay were able to break for once and for all with the belle lettre tradition in, into which uh, sentimental tradition into which Scottish Gaelic literature had fallen in the 19th century. They began to write largely as Marxists, or certainly well on the left wing, uh, about the predicament of ordinary people in the highlands, showing that this was exactly the same sort of predicament as that uh, shared by uh, people in the lowlands, uh, uh, miners, and so on. And their concern didn't remain just in the highlands either? Not at all. Uh, uh, he, uh, you may remember the poem of, uh, of Sam McLean, uh, where he says, my eyes are not on Calvary or on Bethlehem, but in a uh, one-end room in Glasgow or in Edinburgh. How's this word? <laughs> In other words, he looks, uh, his eyes are not on Calvary, he says, uh, nor on Bethlehem, uh, but on that little room of suffering where a child is dying in Glasgow now, a victim of the whole capitalist system. Uh, so writes MacLean, it wouldn't be fair, perhaps, it would, be one of, it would rather be a measure of the achievement of Hugh McDermott and those whom he sparked into life, uh, and activity, that he even woke people uh, like McDermott, even woke the churches to life. And uh, people like George MacLeod uh, got to work in the gobbles. And uh, one could say that the whole Iona community and much of that kind of activity in the Church of Scotland today came into being because people whose eyes were on Calvary and on Bethlehem suddenly began to see what Calvary and Bethlehem actually point you to, which is the suffering in the one end or the uh, slum in Glasgow and Edinburgh. There's another thing about uh, Hugh McDermott, of course, this is a literary matter. Uh, he has faced a problem which is a problem um, in, uh, held in common by people who wish to write in lowland Scots, in Scottish Gaelic, or for that matter in Irish. Uh, that's to say that all these people are writing in languages which at one time or another were literary languages, were used by people, um, the learned and the common people both. It, all of them, however, suffered an eclipse, a time when um, the learned people, for one reason or another, went over to speaking another language. Scots was the language of the learned people in uh, the lowlands of Scotland until, you might say, uh, the period of the Reformation. John Knox was a great man for writing in English. And this meant that people who wrote in Scots tended through, the, say, the 19th century and the beginning of this, and indeed some still do, tend to write only couthy kitchen dramas and this sort of thing, showing on the whole how funny uh, the lower classes are. Uh, Hugh McDermott 
reacted against this and attempted to bring, admittedly, uh, uh, an amalgamated or, or instant Scots, which was kind of uh, uh, made up from various dialects, into the literary field again and to make it the medium for intelligent, important things to be said through. Now, um, uh, this meant that, of course, he was faced with the problem uh, that the people who spoke that kind of way most readily were not the people who would necessarily have the readiest ears to hear the kind of thing that he was wanting to say. Or, at least, though they might be ready to hear uh, wh what he was saying, they might not, not understand the kind of thought forms uh, that he could assume uh, from, from having read his Marx, his Lenin, and the rest. Now, this is exactly the same problem, of course, as faced uh, Sam MacLean, whom I've already spoken of, uh, writing in Scottish Gaelic. Um, and the same problem exists for Moira McEntee and people writing in uh, modern Irish. Exactly the same problem. Now, Hugh McDermott, however, has, I think, solved this in a remarkable way. I remember being at a Burns supper um, uh, of a new Burns club uh, that was made up largely of people from the university in Edinburgh, uh, and uh, the press and uh, the arts and engaged in various ones of the arts and minors from Fife. Now the one person that they all knew was Hugh McDermott and they were able to quote the, his poetry, particularly the hymns, hymns to Lenin and the early poetry, the way they can quote Burns. This I thought was some kind of evidence that he had bridged that gap that I've been speaking about. Mind you, McDermott has been described by English critics as a bore in the classic sense of not being able to leave anything out. Is there any justice in this criticism, John Montague? I think that is the kind of poet he is. Uh, he is very much in the tradition of, uh, of the Dominey. There always has been the Scotsman who uh, was a pedant, and that's mingled into his nature. And I think that his long period of isolation in the Shetlands, one can see how he must have read uh, a great deal without having a great, uh, uh, without having exchange, without having uh, equal equals to talk to. I think uh, this isolation, which he has had for a good part of his life, has made him um, extreme upon certain subjects. It's it's true that especially in the later work once he gets onto a topic there is no he will not uh, he will go on till he drops with exhaustion but the result is that one just looks within the long homes for those passages that one likes and one can walk around the others and of course he certainly has an individual voice do you think he has forged a if not just an individual but a, a an individual universal language for himself uh, out of all the kinds of language that he brings in. He's a great poet. In some of the early lyrics, there's there is great passion. In The Drunk Man Looks at the, at the Thistle, there is a, a, is a parochial poem which has international implications. In the later work, which tries to enter into the mainstream of modern experimental writing, I don't think he quite succeeds. I don't think that you can compare him uh, in that area with Pound or, or with William Carlos Williams. Because uh, the failure, I think, is technical. He did not, 
He has the desire to introduce new subjects, but he has not invented a new style. Uh, in the international way, I think he, he continually was anxious to remind his confreres in, in Scotland of this wider world, which he perhaps over-emphasized over for, uh, for strategic reasons. And he's certainly Celtic and proud of it. He's Celtic and proud of it, and he's communist and proud of it, and he's an experimentalist and proud of it, but I do not really think of him, uh, finally, as an experimental writer. I think of him as a great Scottish poet who has renovated a tradition and who has brought his, uh, his native literature into the modern world again. Another Irish poet, Pierce Hutchinson, recalls meeting with MacDiarmid. He looked with distaste at the whiskey I was drinking, the brand of, and said no true Scot would ever drink that. He then went on to recommend highly Glenfiddich and said that if you couldn't get, get Glenfiddich, you could always drink Jemison. So uh, that was one of the most profound remarks that he made to me. After that, he went on to say, I don't like liberals. I've no time for them at all. In fact, I can't stand them. I have more in common with high Tories than I have with them, a remark which I personally, being a liberal, uh, take exception to. And I rather imagine that nearly all McDermott's admirers are liberals. I think very few of them can be high Tories or communists. And I think this because the whole point of McDermott is that he is aware, more fully than most people are aware, that every human being's birthright is the whole world. And he's made this clear in almost everything he's written, from the early dialect, to call it that, poems, to the later, more difficult poems. He uses difficult words, but he uses them to make us think about them, to make us live them. He wants to pass on to us something of his own relish in the entire human heritage. And this, I think, you can possibly not realize unless you read his work. And um, you read, for example, a statement like this from On a Raised Beach. Let men find the faith that builds mountains before they seek the faith that moves them. Men cannot hope to survive the fall of the mountains. Now, this seems to me so, so wise and so sane that um, I can't understand how people have not accepted him. Um, mind you, later in the same poem, he goes on to say things which I personally would not agree with. Um, he talks about lack of faith, he talks with a certain scepticism about the whole value of human life. And I personally think um, one cannot, if one doubts human life, one, one cannot go on living it. But um, when I feel this, I come up against, on the next page, a remark like, do not argue with me, argue with these stones. Now, 
here you see um, McDermott builds in his own his own defence. Every time you object to him, every time you object, for example, to him using words you don't know in the later poems, he's using them all the time, he's using geological terms. Every time you object to this, he suddenly lapses back or bounds again into, um, into purely simple language and into lyricism, which wins you back again. And then you either go and look up the, the difficult word, or you don't, but whether you do or not, you recognize that this is a human being who wants very strongly every human being to live fully. You found him sympathetic as a man. You obviously find him sympathetic in his poetry. Do you, as a poet, find him sympathetic, which is a slightly different thing? Oh, I do indeed, yes. In fact, uh, this morning, having subjected myself to a reading of MacDermott, I found myself writing poetry, which unfortunately was what I can only call bad pseudo-McDermott, uh, which I'll have to scrub out. But perhaps deep down in ten years, it may do me some good. In the meantime, this wholeness of MacDermott comes across to Hutchinson overwhelmingly as a wholeness of parts. He explains... Uh, when you read uh, in MacDermott lines like these about knowing languages, knowing them as a farmer surveying his fields can distinguish between one kind of crop and another at a stage when that is a mystery to the unskilled eye. And then he goes on into great detail, great glowing, lyrical, physical detail about these differences, these details. Well, this seems to me, um, once you love one thing, one particular thing, then you can grow to love all things. If you don't, you can't. And uh, this is why he, being a universalist, is a Scottish nationalist. Yes, but what does he see for the future of Scotland? This particularist poet, this universal prophet, this socialist nationalist man. Any conceivable parliament in Scotland, any conceivable independent government of Scotland will be a socialist government, socialist parliament, and by socialist, I mean something that goes a long way beyond what most of the members of the Labour Party imagine. <laughs>